0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: During the Trump campaign, my kids were old enough to watch the TV and be like, who is this guy? And I literally said, that's a cartoon. Don't worry about this. That's a cartoon.
2: You're listening to Kaleidoscope, a podcast about identity, faith, and social engagement in dangerous times.
1: And we wake up November 9th, which happens to be my birthday, and this guy has won, right? And I'm, I, what do you tell your kids?
2: I'm your host, Deborah Jan Lee. In this episode, I talk with Ibu Patel about what it's like to be an interfaith leader and a Muslim parent in America today. It's madness. My kid is like absorbing this. Ibu is a former faith advisor to President Barack Obama and the co founder of Interfaith Youth Corps a Chicago-based organization that aims to make interfaith cooperation a social norm. He's the author of several books, including Interfaith Leadership, A Primer, and Acts of Faith, which is a memoir about his life growing up Muslim in America. Ibu is from Glen Ellyn, a suburb of Chicago that's also my hometown. He was a few years ahead of me, so we never met as kids. But as children of immigrants in a white suburb, we had a lot of similar experiences growing up. And that's around the time where we start our interview. Here's me and Ibu. Welcome to Kaleidoscope, Ibu. Good to be with you. Um, I wanted to start with your childhood. You know, even though we grew up probably like a mile away from each other, I I didn't know you. Tell me about your youth. What did it look like?
1: Uh, So, uh, of course, my youth feels a lot different to me now at 42 than it did at 16 or 17. Um, You know, I thought a lot about what it felt like to be a brown kid in a white world growing up in Glen Ellen in the late 1980s, and the early 1990s, and how I felt like I didn't fit in. And uh, so much of what I did was about trying to be white. That is still salient for me.
2: Now, anytime I read about bullying, it's always disturbing. But reading your stories were, they brought like an avalanche of emotions, probably because it felt so familiar, Mm -hmm. both in substance and also in location. Um, Would you be open to just talking a little bit about what that experience was like and what happened to you?
1: So a a, a set of it was overt, right? It was being called ugly names. It was being pushed around. um, And significant parts of it were internalized and covert, right? So I knew when I went to the Ogden Six movie theaters with a set of friends that I was the brown kid and that that would influence the way that I negotiated social situations, right? Like I I just knew that. Uh, Here is something that I've never actually told anybody, but when I was in eighth grade, my dad's niece came to stay with us for the summer, a few years older than me, and you know, my mom was a professor at the College of DuPage, this community college in the western suburbs, and we both took classes there, and I was proactively mean to her. Here's this girl, who's, you know, 17 years old, right, from India, uh, trying to, like, fit in in the western suburbs of Chicago. And the one person who is proximate to her, her cousin, is being an ass. Because that was my way of communicating to the world, I'm not brown.
2: Right. There's an episode of in Fresh Off the Boat where... Eddie does something similar to his cousin who comes and visits. And it's like this act of, like, distancing yourself. Yeah,
1: yeah. that's right. And it's it's humiliating thinking about this, right? Um, I, I was back at, you know, we went to the same high school. I went to my 20th high school reunion a couple years ago. And um, I remember thinking, like, looking at a couple people and thinking, I'm pretty sure I was a mean to you in eighth grade, and i'm and if I was, it's because it was a proactive way of protecting myself from racist bullying. Mm-hmm. I, I'd also like to say that there's another interesting side of this, right, which is um. Around 4th or 5th grade at Parkview Elementary School, which you might have gone to as well.
2: I went to Westfield, but I knew Parkview
1: folks. Um, uh, There's a a set of kids in my school who basically stopped doing work, right? They kind of stopped trying. They would just kind of ride the waves in class. They wouldn't turn in their homework. They stopped really playing hard in sports. They're just, you know, kind of having fun, riding the waves kind of thing, right? And it, it kind of continues in junior high. And I think I tried that for a week or two, and my parents were like, are you kidding me? Right? Like, the, we didn't immigrate to this country for you to, for you to be average. And I would, like, literally go down the list of kids who hadn't turned in their homework for weeks. And my parents would say, you're not like them. We're not like them. And they never used the words brown or white. But thinking back, that's exactly what they meant, right? Basically, my mother would say to me, if you're not head and shoulders above the next guy, you're not getting a job, you're not gonna get hired. Uh, My dad would say, I can't can't make phone calls for you the way some of these kids' dads can, right? And I, I viewed it as this unfair burden.
2: I'm curious about how parenting and how your conversations about faith with your children have changed as they've grown up and as society changes.
1: Yeah. I have lots of stories on this because my kids are seven and ten. So we are not the kind of Muslims that are requiring our kids to learn the Quran and Arabic, et cetera, et cetera. What we want is them to have a relationship with the tradition. And in order for that to happen with a tradition like Islam, you have to have some vocabulary. Otherwise, it's inaccessible to you. Now, if we live if we lived in a majority Muslim culture, that might be different, right? You might absorb a set of things going along in life the way you do here if you're a Christian. That's not the case, right? And so being, proactive about our kids. Developing a relationship with the tradition is important to us. But the nature of that relationship is less important to me.
2: And how do you talk to them as they absorb, you know, negative messaging yeah. about Islam in, from the news and from society?
1: So, you know, uh, I live near the Old Town School of Folk Music, it's this great place that teaches folk music and has concerts every night. And one of my favorite bands that plays there every year is a band named Tinariwen, which is this band of of Muslim roots musicians from West Africa, from Mali. And uh, I'm walking my older son, Zayd, up Lincoln Avenue, and we pass the Old Town School, and we're checking out the posters there, and Tinariwen's coming. And, uh, you know, there they are dressed in their Bedouin outfits, you know, robes and headscarves, and my son's instinctive words were dad that's isis hmm. so wh- where did he get that from right where in this like progressive multicultural upper middle class be proud of your identity kind of world does he instinctively associate robes and headscarves on men with isis and, and by the way, these guys are holding instruments, and the Old Town School is not in the habit of advertising Muslim extremism, right? I mean, like, it's, it's a poster at a concert hall, right? So, I mean, obviously, Islamophobia, you know, it's, it's so in the air that you breathe it in.
2: So what did you say in that moment? I'm
1: like, well, I mean, probably not my best parenting moment, but honestly, I was like, are you nuts? What are you talking about, right? Right. And and I learned from that. I learned from, oh, my gosh, my kid is like absorbing this. It's madness. So what what do I do? What do we do? So my kids probably each own a half dozen Muhammad Ali shirts, you know, and they know that the Sears Tower and the John Hancock building were designed by a Muslim. And they, you know, they know that Lupe Fiasco and most deaf are Muslims. In other words, what my wife and I do is we articulate like a a pride in Islam that is relevant to them, which is to say like a set of – the people that they would naturally admire, athletes, artists, who are Muslim, were very were very uh, proactive about about centering them. It's a lot more than I had growing up. So we were very proactive in getting a bunch of young religious education teachers for our kids, like twenty somethings and thirty somethings. So it's not like some guy who looks like he walked out of an eleventh century cave, mm-hmm. right? It's like some dude with, you know, like a, who looks like Prince, you know?
2: (laughs) Hey, we're gonna take a short break. And when we come back, more from my conversation with Ibu Patel. Welcome back to Kaleidoscope. We're going to shift gears a bit. In the next part of our chat, Ibu and I talk more about his experiences as a leader with Interfaith Youth Corps. So I think there's room in America for all of us. And I feel like in your work, you you are working to build bridges across a lot of divides. And I would love to hear your vision of Ways that you build community where Mm -hmm. there's room for everyone.
1: Um, I think a part of that is in tribally partisan times to what we call lead with pluralism is super important to not first ask the question, how have you oppressed me? Or how are you wreaking havoc and injustice on the world? But rather... What are things about you that I admire? Let's stipulate that we're going to disagree on a bunch of things. I mean, you know, for me, that's like table stakes, right? So on the one hand, you know, I'm angry at all these folks who are voting uh, in favor of the Muslim ban and are cheering for it, right? And I'm also struck by the New York Times story that says in the South, when Syrian refugees finally arrive and resettle... It's people from evangelical churches that tour them around Walmart. And I am much more interested in finding the 1% of common ground where we might begin a conversation than I am in highlighting the the thing that I want to denounce about you. This doesn't mean that I don't have points of view. And it doesn't mean that I'm not interested in hard conversations. It just means if I meet a person, I am more interested in having a conversation about the recent Walmart tour that they gave Mahmud and his family than I am in their vote for Roy Moore. I disagree with their vote for Roy Moore, but where do you begin the conversation?
2: And when you're working with college students who may have a lot of fire in their belly, You described yourself as once, you know, an anger-fueled activist when you were in college. How do you help them process anger and frustration at injustices that they see and start at the point that you're pushing them towards, you know, the 1% of common ground?
1: It's stories of moments of, uh, I think, beauty and grace is what I would call them, and also the difficult but stunningly rewarding work of what Gary Snyder said, moving the world a millionth of an inch. summer after I graduated from college, I did a tour of the United States, driving, you know, literally New York City to Seattle. It was awesome, and I'm a hair-on-fire activist, right? And uh, I'm in Seattle. I'm in the Capitol Hill neighborhood, which is, you know, the, um, the kind of bohemian... Uh, Lots of tattoo parlors and cafes and gay nightclubs neighborhood. And um, one of these, you know, fiery preachers, not evangelical fundamentalist preachers, gets out of his van and starts yelling a bunch of ugly things about gay people. Right. And I'm about to open my mouth to yell ugly things back. And then basically 25 people beat me to it. And there's a shouting match going on between this guy saying a bunch of ugly things and these now, like, 40 people. But for whatever reason, at that moment, I decided not to be the 51st person, right? Like, those folks were – they were doing just fine, right?
2: They had it covered. They
1: they had it covered. So 10 minutes later, things disperse, and um, my traveling companion and I are starting to walk away. And then for whatever reason, I kind of turned around and I said to this guy, I'm like, doesn't the Bible say that you should help poor people? And he said, every morning, my wife and I buy a loaf of bread and a stick of butter and a dozen eggs and we make egg sandwiches for the homeless people around here. And I'm like, that's good. And I turned to walk away and I heard him say, thank you for being decent to me. That happened 20 years ago, 21 years ago, and I I remember that moment, right? And the thing that I remember about it is, it's it's unclear to me the utility of being the 51st person shouting at this guy in the crowd. I'm, I guess, I'm glad somebody was arguing with him, but it didn't. At that time, it didn't need to be me. For whatever reason. I decided to ask him about something else, something else that I thought was important that I was asking as kind of a gotcha question. And it turned out that he fulfilled that value. And there's something about the word decent that, like, grabs at my throat. Like, I think that that's basically the most important things human beings can aspire to is decency, right, being decent with one another. And I do not know what to fully make of that moment Right. I'm not I'm not interested in like exeguting it into into the ground, but I'm glad that I did what I did and I remember that moment. And I, I I think that there was a moment of grace and just that thank you for being decent to me moment. I want I want more of that. I want to begin with more of that.
2: Right. And in your organization you work with college students bringing students from different faiths together to do service projects. And one of the things that I've noticed in my reporting is that there are a lot of the people who are still within their faith communities, whether you know it's Christianity or Islam or another religion, they're disenchanted with a lot of what they're seeing from their leaders. They feel like their spiritual leaders have warped their religious texts and used them to promote policies that aren't inclusive and aren't helping everybody. I'm just wondering if you're seeing that among your college students and what you say to students or young people who say, I, th- I think I might want to leave my faith because of this.
1: I think part of what we often point out is that uh, there, the definition of faith from the great scholar Wilford Cantwell Smith is a relationship with the tradition. And Christianity is a is a broad and deep tradition. Islam is a broad and deep tradition. And there are many ways to have a relationship with the tradition, right? So you can be a Salafi Muslim and be highly literalist and think that the ideal Muslim community is modeled by the the prophet's community in Medina circa six twenty five and you can be a Sufi Muslim and think the Quran is largely metaphor and um, both of those are legitimate paths within Islam and so one of the things we talk about is don't think Islam is just one thing no tradition that's fourteen hundred years old that is in over a hundred countries that you know, has a 1.6 billion followers now, forget how many followers it must have had over its history, is a single thing. Um, the second thing is trend lines in religion are a funny thing. If you were to follow, if you were to ask where is American religion going in 1957 at the height of the Eisenhower era, you know, you would think that it, everybody was going to be in church in two years. If you were to ask where was it going in 1967, uh, you know, in the summer during the summer of love, uh, you were going to say you would say churches are going to cease to exist in three years, right? And so religion in America has has bounced up and down and around and around. Um, I think that the most interesting fact about American religion is that new people, leaders, institutions constantly get to reshape it there are theologies of interfaith cooperation within every religious tradition and so for people who want to be rooted in islam and have relationships with jews, christians, atheists etc there are resources and stories for that in your tradition we promise you right and what does it look like to have a country in which that becomes the norm
2: Eboo Patel, our guest on this episode of Kaleidoscope. For more about his work, go to kscopepod.com. All right, it's that time again. This is the part of the show where we invite Kaleidoscope's pastor-in-residence, Aaron James Brown. Hey, welcome back, Aaron. Woo-woo! <laughs> Aaron's going to talk about the lessons from this episode that you can take into your life and faith communities. So, Aaron, you heard Eboo? I did. What's your takeaway?
0: I really appreciated the part of the interview where he was summarizing and you were sympathizing with him about being bullied and being the person who does the exclusionary activity or pushing people out of community. And our lives are often about learning to negotiate social situations. We're constantly trying to figure out where we fit in, who fits in, and who is on the margins of a social group. And what I often find myself trying to do as a person of faith is look for the people in a gathering who are on the outsides of the social circle, who are not the center of attention, who do not feel like they fit in, and creating space where they feel like they can be themselves, but also then inviting them into the circle as well to be a part of the community.
2: And you know what I find? I find that when I am able to do that, that is when I am most secure with myself. Yes. That is when I am in the best possible place and being my the best version of myself. And it's hard to do that when you are being bullied or excluded another way. So it's like there's this balance of, like, caring for yourself. Kind of acknowledging the struggle that you're going through and getting yourself to a place where you have the strength and capacity to really be the person who draws other people into the circle. Right. It takes a very strong and courageous community to
0: say, we're not going to be a part of this social circle that is excluding us either. We're going to create our own community where all the failures and the F-ups and the freaks get to come together and be in community with one another, too, and reject what social norm we think we're supposed to be buying into. So you can either bring people into a community or you can create your own community where it is this chosen family of people who love and accept you for who you are.
2: That's awesome advice, Erin. Thanks for sharing that. I hope I know that I'm going to be thinking about that, and I hope that our listeners think about ways that they can be more inclusive and make their communities more inclusive. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next episode, right? You better. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Kaleidoscope. On the next episode, we'll hear the story of Danny Cortez, a Southern Baptist pastor, and his son, Drew. In one car ride, they come out to each other, for different reasons, and it turns their world upside down.
1: On Sunday morning, I woke up, I googled, you know, my blood pressure and it said, go immediately to ER. And I knew I couldn't miss the Sunday. I knew this was the Sunday. If, if I don't go to church and, and preach this message, um, I'm not going to have another opportunity.
2: That's it for this episode. Kaleidoscope is produced by Dennis Funk with amazing support by co-founder Aaron James Brown. I'm your host, Deborah Jian Lee. You can find out more about the show at kscopepod.com. Our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is at Pod. Thanks to the BTS Center for funding season one. If you're into the show and you want to hear more in the future, please consider supporting us. Our Patreon account is Kscope Pod. Or use the Radio Public app where we get some coins for each listen. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps too. All right. I'll see you next episode. In the meantime, let the world see you. When they do, they'll never be the same.
1: So... Do you want want me to share the hot dog story? Is that what you're saying?